chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, and we've been studying this chapter for several weeks now, and we come to the end of the chapter, verses 11 through 15, and it's somewhat of a summary as to what Paul has been uh, laying forth in this second chapter. I've I've titled this lesson tonight, Effectual Grace, Grace That Is Powerful, Effectual Grace. Uh, When we think about the word grace, uh, I find it very interesting that Christians have a difficult time defining what it is. We sing about amazing grace. Uh, We love to contemplate the grace of God. We know that we are saved by grace. We love the grace that's found only in Christ Jesus. But I think we we somehow manage and, and often disconnect the power that comes through God's grace. The power of God's grace in our lives. Uh, When we come to God through prayer and through the intercession of Jesus Christ, we come to the throne of grace. Um, It was Jesus Christ who told the Apostle Paul that my grace is sufficient for thee. If we think about that word sufficient, um, it means sustaining. It means it's what leads us, empowers us, emboldens us. So look at verse number 11. You're going to see this grace, this effectual grace. Titus chapter 2, verse number 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Quite sharp language at the end of this chapter. Very direct. This is a pastoral epistle. Nonetheless, it is for the believer, not just for the pastor. It's for the Christian. Uh, First and second Timothy, as well as Titus, they make up the the three book group of pastoral epistles. But you can see clearly that the grace of God is on full display beginning in verse number 11. Grace here, the Greek word word is charis. Uh, You can also get this uh, where um, charismata, charismatic, they are grace gifts. Um, Grace is the state of kindness or favor towards someone. It's a state of kindness or favor towards an individual. We should be dispensers of God's grace as God's grace has affected our lives. And this particular passage is in regard to, as we can remember, it is the grace of God that is active in a church. That's what Paul has been talking about, right? He's spoke in the early portions of this chapter that you should speak with doctrine, you should teach doctrine, and that the aged men be sober, be diligent, and he goes through this list of qualifications. He's not necessarily talking about gray-headed men. He's talking about mature believers, mature men. You can have a, a young man in years who is mature in the Christian faith. You can have an aged man who, aged man who is gray who is not mature. In the Christian faith. What Paul is talking about here is the church should have mature men and women in their, in their midst as members of this church. And those things should impact the lives of others, right? 
those aged men and aged women are to impact the lives of the young men and young women. That's what the beginning portions of Titus chapter 2 are all about. Last week we talked about the, the requirements and the duties of slaves. The word doulos, a, literally a slave. And we saw that we, as believers, are willing servants. We are willing slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse number 11, Paul brings in grace. It's almost like a capstone. It's almost as if Paul is saying, look, if you're going to be a mature church, if you're going to be a group of mature believers, you should be marked by grace. And that grace only comes through Jesus Christ. This is what he's saying. For the grace of God that appears, uh, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. This is not only grace in the life of the church, this is grace in the life of the believer. This word is used 155 times in the New Testament. The grace that we are talking about here is sufficient. The grace that we are talking about here is the grace that fuels our love. Fuels our love for Christ and fuels our love for each other. The bride of Christ. I was, as I was studying for this, I, uh, a pastor made a wonderful point he said, how is it that we can, as a, as a church, he's talking universal. He said, how is it that we can profess to be mature believers and not love the bride of Christ? How can we be mature in Christ and not love his people? So check this out. And then he used this wonderful illustration. He said, he used himself as an illustration. I think it's really good. He said, imagine if you come to me. And you say, hey, I want to be your friend. I want, to be, I, I want to be close to you. I want you to disciple me. I want us to do everything together. I want you to teach me the word. But I got a problem. I really can't stand your wife. How should I take that? <laughs> How would you take that? Look, I really like you. I just can't stand your wife. How can we say that we're mature in Christ and yet we despise the church? Or we do not love the church. You can't love the husbandman and deny his bride and reject his bride. The mark of a mature believer is that they will love the people of God. And maybe we know that we don't love the people of God as we should, but that love for the people of God is always growing. That's the mark of a mature believer. Someone who is growing in Christ. You begin to love people. You, you, your life is marked by by your love that you have received through Christ, you love others. That's the mark of a mature believer, and it is grace that fuels our love. Check out this verse, Luke 6, 32. You don't have to turn now, I'll read it to you. If you love those who love you, what benefit? That same word for benefit is grace. What grace is that to you? If you love those that love you, what grace is that to you? Isn't that interesting? It's easy to love those that love you. It's harder to love those that don't love you. And yet we're called to do that. We're called to love our enemies. For even sinners love those that love them. That's a stinging remark that I need constantly reminded of. Grace is what saves us. Ephesians chapter 2. Praising God and having favor. That same word for favor is grace with all people. Acts 2.47 And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. It is by grace that we are saved. Grace gives believers power. Grace causes us to persevere. Grace is 
fueling the gospel. The gospel is the gospel of grace. We are justified by grace. The Bible says that we are elect according to grace, Romans 11.5. The church is equipped with pastors, elders, and deacons by God's grace. Giving accordance, this is giving monetary funds, is by grace. Grace fuels our worship. Grace is, think about this in Hebrews chapter 4. Remember this verse. I've mentioned this already. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of the throne of grace. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is a significant word that we're talking about. And I think whenever we sing Amazing Grace, we love the song. We love to know I once was lost, but now I'm found blind and now I see. Those are all wonderful truths that we, that we truly embrace and we know. But how amazing is that grace in our lives? Do we truly see God's grace as amazing? In the epistle of Jude, false teachers pervert grace. Grace, as we will see here in verse number 11 of Titus chapter 2, grace marks the mature Christian life. One pastor said it this way, I think it was so good. He said, grace is power, not just pardon. Grace is power, not just pardon. We don't leave off grace when we're saved. It's grace that empowers us by the Spirit of God to live according to God's truth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, Cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without the requiring of repentance. Cheap grace justifies sin. It excuses sin. Real grace justifies the sinner that leads a life of turning from, the, from that sin to Jesus Christ. That was Philip de Corsi said that. Let's look at this first verse here again. Grace came then what is it? How do we get our hands on this? How is it that we get our hands on this grace? What is this grace? Is it simply unmerited favor? This is a good definition of what grace is. God's grace is His active favor bestowing the greatest gift on those who deserve the greatest punishment. Isn't that really good? Let me read that again. God's grace is His active favor bestowing the greatest gift, salvation, on those who deserve the greatest punishment. We do not deserve this gift of grace. Let's put our hands on this. What is this gift of grace? Jesus, dear ones, listen. Jesus is the grace of God personified. Jesus is the grace of God. Turn with me. Keep something there in Titus chapter 2 and go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse number 14. John chapter 1, verse number 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as, the, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jump to verse 16. And of His fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. Verse 17. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Jesus is the minister of grace. 
He is the minister of God's grace. He's the one that brings salvation as the rest of verse number 11 in Titus chapter 2 clearly portrays. He's the one that brings salvation. Jesus is the one who secures salvation. This is by grace and not of works. I'm heading back to Titus chapter 2. We can't interpret verse number 11 to be a a universal or universalism approach to salvation. This is not an all dogs go to heaven verse. This is not what uh, Paul is saying, that the grace has appeared of God to bring a salvation hath appeared to all men. He's not saying salvifically. He's not saying that all men are now saved. In a very real sense, it's kind of similar to what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy, but... Whereas all men have one Savior, there is only one way to the Father, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. In a sense there, Paul is affirming that Jesus Christ, in the sense that He has appeared to all men, He is the only one that saves. You can't drive through the United States of America and not pass a church. There's really no excuse in this land for unbelief. There's, there are Christian markings all across our land. There's a church nearly on every corner of every city. The, the Word of God is, is proclaimed in, in many places in the United States and elsewhere around the world, but predominantly here in the United States. There's not a country in the entire world that sends forth more missionaries than the United States of America. More pastors and preachers and teachers and seminaries and Bible colleges that are fueling and teaching men to preach the Word of God. You won't find it anywhere other than in the world than you find here in the United States, the proclamation of the Gospel. In a very real sense, the grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ to all men in the sense that that Gospel message is going out to the ends of the earth. But not, nevertheless, there are those who do not believe. There are those who who have not heard Romans chapter 10. This is why it is important for us to be gospel proclaimers. We we want to tell others about the love of Jesus Christ. We are to call the lost. We are to love men and women into the kingdom of God by telling them the truth. Not some sort of passive approach to ah well as you'll see in the later verses you know you just do your thing and i'll do my thing and we hope it all just works out in the end that's not love love is that telling individuals that we have sinned against the holy god and the only way that we can be reconciled is through the shed blood of jesus christ and his sacrifice on the cross that's and his his resurrection through his resurrection we have newness of life there's the good news we can't palate that we can't water that down There is a sense of guilt that comes from hearing the truth. If we don't experience that guilt, that guilt will never be taken upon Jesus Christ. We'll never see that He's the one that bore our guilt and shame. Grace teaches us. Look at verse number 12 of Titus chapter 2. Teaching us. There's the active power of this grace. There's the grace in the life of a mature believer. It's teaching us. Aren't you thankful that the grace of God isn't just leaving you up to yourself? 
<laughs> Aren't you thankful that the grace of God just didn't get the motor started and, and said, well, I hope you get it figured out here on the way. No, the grace is, of God is active. It's teaching us through Jesus Christ and his word. What? What's it teaching us? One, to deny ungodliness. To deny ungodliness. This means to renounce ungodliness and worldly lusts. Literally, if you were to translate that, it would mean earthly desires. What Paul is saying there was we deny ungodliness. We, we openly reject it. Let, let's say, let's use homosexuality for an example. It's a prominent issue right now. There's, uh, it, it seems to be that this lifestyle seems to be taking off like wildfire. I just watched a video here recently of a 16-year-old boy that, that was naming all of these gender changing pronouns that uh, frankly I have no idea what I don't think he knows what he was saying but how do we expect a 16 year old individual to to fully (laughs) navigate that time in their lives apart from the truth of what God has revealed in his word it won't happen we deny ungodliness We, we deny the open rejection of truth maybe maybe we become a little bit in you know numb to the homosexual issue pornography we deny that ungodliness we 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 openly reject it It, it's unrighteousness it's filth it's it tears marriages apart it destroys families it ruins young people or abortion I, I, this is probably more near to my heart. I bring this up often, but nonetheless, I think for the most part in evangelicalism, we have, we have, for the, we have kind of just turned a blind eye to abortion. You know, it, it, it's still going on. It's still taking place right now. As the church, we can't sit comfortable to this. It, it, we, this is a war. We must fight against this. And, and look, I realize we do the baby bottle campaign thing. That's wonderful. You know, I love that. I think it's good to send and try to fund any way we can to, to help these young ladies out. But there comes a point. When are we going to actually say enough is enough? It has to stop. Or are we just going to be like, well, how do you do this? How do you slow this train down? What are you supposed to do? Do something. Do something. This, this has, we deny ungodliness. We reject it. The only voice, what is the only voice that's against such wickedness? What's that? Yeah. What, against. What's the only voice against the advancement of such wickedness? I should have said it that way. What's the only thing in the whole world that's going to put the brakes on such wickedness that's taking place. The truth. Um, more specifically, it's us. It's the church. It's believers. It's Christians. It's, it's us. And Paul is being rather poignant here. He's saying, look, we deny ungodliness. We don't welcome it at all. We reject it. That's the mark of a mature believer, that if it's contrary to the truth, we, we don't just embrace it and say, hey, you know, you're free to do, you know, whatever you want to do. I can't tell you that this is wrong or right, and I'm not going to just, you know, step on your toes or anything. The truth is the truth. 
Mature living is marked in this present world by sobriety, sobriety. We are to live soberly. We live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Why and how? How? Because of your own might? No, it's by the grace of God. We have to remind ourselves of this. Because it's very easy for us to fall into the trap to say, look at these wicked sinners going in and out of the abortion clinic. It's very easy to say, look at these wicked sinners that are addicted to pornography. When we don't remind ourselves, one, it's but by the grace of God that that's not you. And two, you're worse than them. We are. If Christ had not reached into our lives, dear ones, we... We are worse in a worse situation than what they're dealing with right now. The only hope that, we, that they have and that we have is in Christ Jesus and in the truth of God's Word. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. I love this. What's the mark of a mature believer? Verse 13, where are our eyes? We are looking for that blessed hope and that glorious glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. That's where we're looking. We don't have our eyes fixated upon these things in this world. We have our eyes looking to the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 13 has great significance as well as verse 14. But the great significance found in verse 13 is a clear testimony of the deity of Jesus Christ. That He is God. He is not created, that he is from eternity past, that he is truly the Son of God, the Redeemer of mankind. We are looking to Jesus. We're not fixated on the pettiness of this life. Notice in verse number 14, who gave himself for us. What a powerful verse. Let's just jump back real quick to Revelation chapter 19. And let's, let's look at this glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse number 11. John is writing there of this wonderful, powerful passage in Revelation 19. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he does make judgment and war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. That's symbolic symbolism, that's symbolism of, of judging, powerful judgment that is in his, his eyes. He sees all things. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. That is our Redeemer. As the beginning of verse 14 says, He is the one who gave Himself for us. What a powerful phrase. He gave Himself, laid down His life for us. Who's the us? Is it all mankind without question? The us here is clearly believers. 
Those that have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. The us are those who believe and repent of their sins and trust in Christ. This is clearly not talking about universalism again. There are those who do not believe and will not believe. You can preach them the, to them the gospel until you're blue in the face. They will not come to Christ. Why? Because as we saw today in John chapter 3, we are condemned already. It, what was it that turned you from your condemnation? It was the grace of God. The active, effectual grace of God in our lives that turned us from our condemnation to eternal life. From darkness to light. It was the grace of God in Christ Jesus. I love this word as well in verse 14. That He might redeem Carl came in here tonight. And I'm going to steal your story, Carl, because it was too good. What's the word redeem? We just talked about this last week. Last week when we were talking about redemption. This morning we were talking about redemption. Redemption is the theme of Ruth, redeeming love. And Carl came in this evening and he was telling a story that... A, was it David Jeremiah? David Jeremiah told a story of Abraham Lincoln who went to a slave auction. That's what redeem means. It means to purchase someone. It's significantly more than redeeming a coupon. It means to purchase someone from the slave market. And Abraham Lincoln went to one of these slave auctions. And, these, the, and he was watching the slave auction take place and he saw a woman who was angry and embittered and she looked battered and, and tired and fatigued. And as she came to the slave block, Abraham Lincoln bought her. He purchased her for himself. And whenever she came over to him, he said, you're free to go. You're free to go and eat whatever you'd like. You can do whatever you want to do. Go wherever you want to go. You're free. And she said, well, if I can go wherever I want to go and I can eat whatever I want to eat. And I can, what else did she say? Say, say, anything, say anything I want to say. She said that I'm staying with you. <laughs> I'm staying with you. If that's the case, I'm going with you. Isn't that exactly what happened? Christ has purchased us. He says, you're free from sin. And we say, if that's the case, I'm staying with you. If that's the case, I'm sticking with you. Uh, we were slaves to our sin, and He has redeemed us. Verse 14. He's redeemed us from all iniquity. We have been forgiven for our sins in the past. We have been forgiven for our sins that are being committed right now. We have been forgiven of our sins that we will yet for commit. We are forgiven, redeemed from all iniquity, that He would purify unto Himself a peculiar people. Now there's been much debate and contention about this goofy little word, peculiar. It, it does mean weird. That's not what we're immediately to deduce from this. It means special. But, but in the sense, tell me, Christians are weird. We are weird. The world sees us as weird. I mean, let's be honest. We, we don't have a problem with that. We don't have a problem that the world sees us as different. We're supposed to be different. But this word peculiar isn't necessarily regarding a funniness or, or a weirdness. What Paul is saying there is that Christ has redeemed and purified himself a special people, a people for himself, a bride. 
His bride. He has redeemed them. He has washed them. And they are zealous for good works. No, this doesn't mean that we just you know, go crazy with every little tiny thing that we see and, and we specify as good works. Yes, sir? I looked at the book of Job one day. And uh, I looked at verse, uh, chapter 31 in Job, the first verse. You may not say it in your version, but uh, 31 one. Job 31.1 Job 31.1 I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? This person said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. A young woman. I would, I would agree with that. That's, that's a mature. That's a mature Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, my buddy Jonathan Edwards, I'm always talking about Jonathan Edwards, and he, he made, by the time he was 21 years old, he had set, I believe it was, he had a, a list of these, these essentially these um, covenants that he made with himself before God. And one of them was with his eyes. I was telling you guys about this, I think it was either a Wednesday night or a Sunday night, that Jonathan Edwards had made a, a covenant with his eyes, that he wouldn't speak with his facial expressions. Because when somebody says something goofy to us, we have the tendency to go like, and that says a lot, you know? Uh, we, we make facial expressions that express things and communicate language without words. And Jonathan Edwards said, I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm not going to try to communicate that I'm better than somebody with my face. You can say a lot with your eyes. And you can say a lot with your face. And, and in this case, it's a little different than what Job was saying in Job 31.1, where he said, I'm going to make a covenant that I am not going to look at a woman with lust. And that's great. I mean, it still happens, but as mature believers, we know when to turn away from that temptation. Uh, and, and it's the grace of God that navigates us away from that. Yeah, good point, Carl. Any other comments up to this point? Until we get really into the, the nitty-gritty in verse number 15. So we have been redeemed by Christ and His grace, not of the works of the law, not of anything we have done to deserve it. We do not deserve this mercy and grace. It was all the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 15 is very significant. And I don't want to burn too quickly through this because I think it needs, uh, I think we really need to just kind of see what Paul is saying here to us in the 21st century, as well as throughout church history. Not only has grace come in Jesus Christ, verses 11 through 12, we've seen that grace is what fuels our Christian maturity as we look to Jesus. So grace is coming again in a sense that Jesus is grace personified. We now preach grace. This is what we preach and teach. These things, Paul says, speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority, period. 
What a hammer slamming down the gavel statement. These things speak, preach, teach, speak doctrine, exhort, rebuke with authority. What? Is he actually commanding the preacher or pastor to say, nobody's going to come against me? No, we obviously know that's not what he's saying, but why? Why is he not saying that? Command with all authority. Speak means to preach doctrine, preach and press the truth. Exhortation means to rebuke sin. Expose sin, to rebuke it, expose and to confront it. With all authority. That means command. Demand that the truth be obeyed. Preachers do not share their own insights and ideas. Did you know that? I don't care I don't care to convey to you my ideas or my quirky little uh, thoughts. What I want more than anything in this world is that you would hear the Word of God, search the Word of God, and obey the Word of God. If something comes out of my mouth regarding the Word of God, it is your duty to go and check it with the Word of God. As the noble Berean said, that we, we search the Scriptures daily. That's the desire of a pastor. Not that you would be a follower of Deacon George, that you would follow Christ. I don't care what you think about me. I do care what you think about my Savior. I want us to hear the Word, to search the Word, and obey the Word. That's what this is all about. That's the authority that Paul is talking about. As a preacher, you can't... We're we're responsible. John MacArthur said this, the preacher is responsible to bind people according to the truth. I'm literally commanded to tie you up with the truth so that you can't escape the truth. And if you break away from the truth, that's your own fault. But it's the duty of the pastor and the teacher and the preacher to push you against and into the corner of the truth. You have to make a decision. This isn't just all head knowledge. It should cause something. It's not just all understanding with no action. It's having the truth of God come to press upon our hearts that it matures us. In Christ Jesus. Pastors and preachers are not at liberty to change the message. Oh guys, I can't express to you how important this is. We are not at liberty to change the message. In order to make the gospel palatable to unbelievers. It is the number one no-no. In pastoral ministry, you cannot dilute the gospel. Do not change the message. You change the message, you change the gospel. Preachers and pastors are not at liberty to make the message more palatable to the goats. There are sheep and there are goats, and the goats do not want the word of God. This is, the, this is the thrust. Remember when we were talking about the church growth movement that the individuals are now making and doing whatever they can to just get the people in the door? Just get as many people as you possibly can get in the door and then we'll deal with them. The problem with that is the, the worship of, of communal local church worship is not about the goats. It's for believers. Yes, we preach evangelistically. Yes, we preach the gospel. We plead with sinners to come to Christ and repent of their sins. But nonetheless, the worship is for the sheep. We can't change the message in order to please the goats. We're not at liberty to do that. I love this word authority. 
It's a very powerful word. Pastors are to speak with the very authority of God because they teach the word of God. The authority does not rest in the elder or pastor. The authority resides in the word because it is God's word. This is the same statements that were made of Jesus. Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus had ended these sayings and the people were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees. Why? Because the scribes and Pharisees were always quoting someone. But Jesus just spoke with authority because he is the word made flesh. He is the very son of God, the authority of God himself. This is what we preach. This is what we teach. Jesus Christ is the authority. Oh, there's a very interesting statement as we'll bring this time together to a close. Let no man despise thee. Now, guys have done mental gymnastics around this. They've said, look, you don't come against the pastor. You don't do anything that's going to cause uh, your rejection of a man. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not telling Titus, look, don't let anybody say anything bad about you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, let no man disregard you. They may hate you. And that's okay. That will happen. There will be those who just hate the pastor. They can't stand him. They'll usually hit the road. That's fine. That always happens. But let it not be because you didn't bring the word of God and doctrine to bear on their heart. If it's, if it's a personal issue, there can be annoying things that pastors do. I told you about my, my friend... I told you about my friend who would always preach, and he was. And he would jiggle his chains and keys, and I tell you, oh my goodness, it drove me ballistic. I'm like, I love you, man, but you got to ditch the keys, you know. There can be little quirky things that pastors do, and there can be reasons why the man is despised, but let it not be because he didn't bring the word of God. The authority of doctrine and the authority of the truth to bear on the people's heart. I'm okay with that. Don't be a coward, Paul is saying. Preach the truth. Don't vacillate when things get hard. Don't let them despise you because you're you're coward. You you're, you you backed away from the truth. You got wishy-washy. I went down to a pastors' conference in Washington D.C. and that's actually where I met the Itzels and. The man who was speaking there was a man by the name of Stephen J. Lawson. I think he's a phenomenal teacher and speaker. And, and as he was preaching and teaching, I, I was looking, I was listening to him, and something, after I'm, I'm listening to him for several hours, and a thought came to my mind that literally changed the way I looked at pastoral ministry from then on. It was probably the only thing I learned from the whole pastor conference. It was this. That man believes what he's saying. That simple statement changed the way I look at pastoral ministry for the rest of my life. This man believes what he's talking about. If you find a, a man who does not believe what he's speaking, you can tell, can you not? 
You can tell whenever a pastor or a preacher has not, allowed, has not had the doctrine to come and sit on his own heart. It's not part of his life. It isn't, it isn't resting in his mind. It hasn't been able to mature him. You can tell when those things take place. You can tell whenever he's not under the authority of the word that he's preaching. We must believe what we're reading and seeing and speaking. The word of God is the authority. We preach salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And man wants to contribute something to his salvation. He wants to bring something to the grace. Well, it's got to be grace and. Right? We, we even see this in evangelicalism. Yes, I believe that it's all of grace, but I think you need to... You, you need to what? Well, isn't your action, isn't your repentance, isn't your faith part of your action and support of your salvation? Yes, tell me where repentance and belief come from. Repentance is a gift of God. How does that happen? Godly sorrow works repentance. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's so important for us to be preaching and teaching the word of God as we see that, that it is God who's actively bringing his people, his sheep, calling them by name to himself. We'll end here. Because so many have steered away from this in verse 15. These things speak, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Many think that, well, you know, the preaching thing, that's important and all, but it's not the main thing. I think teaching the Bible is important, but do you have to talk about all that doctrine? I, I think reading the Scriptures publicly in worship is important, but do you have to read so much? <laughs> it's all about the Word. This is why we are believers. Because of the Word of God and the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. I'll give you three marks of a healthy church, real quick. Three marks of a healthy church. Number one, it is the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If you find a church that is preaching and teaching sound biblical doctrine day in and day out, you found a healthy church. Number two, obedience to the ordinances. Baptism and Lord's Supper. Praise God, we get to witness a wonderful testimony next week of believers' baptism. Two people wanting to be obedient to what the Scriptures teach in believers' baptism. What a glorious truth that! What how awesome is that? That's what, that's, what, that's what this is all about. When we come to the Lord's Supper, do you know that the Lord's Supper and baptism they preach? Did you know that they the Lord's Supper and baptism they preach the gospel. They preach the gospel in the sense of baptism. We are crucified with Christ. We are buried with him. And we've been risen to newness of life. When we come to the communion table and we remember the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his broken body for our sins in our place, we think of the gospel. They're pictures of the gospel. And the third is church discipline. The, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul said. A healthy church is marked by preaching, believing the ordinances, living, obeying the ordinances, and church discipline. Those are biblical commands, biblical actions in the church that, that mark a healthy, mature church. This is 
were you going to say, Carl? Were you going to say something? Did you raise your hand? Oh, I thought I saw your hand go up there. There's a saying, if your church doesn't have crime, it's dying. Huh. Which means it needs 